Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. I just got back, um, I just came to the States three weeks ago, and all this, like, ten months while this book was being made, um, I can't tell you how supportive and wonderful Unnamed Press has been. Olivia and Chris, thank you so much, and you guys should be seriously very, very, very proud of yourselves. Um, I'm very proud to be represented, and I know Adam is by Unnamed Press. And thank you, Skylight by, uh, Books, for having us tonight. So let's have a round of applause for all of them. All right, so we did rock, paper, scissors, and I guess I'm going first. I think so. <laughs> she won. So. I won. So um, I am going to read uh, a short excerpt from my novel, The Body Myth, that just came out um, February 26th of this year. Um, I'm not going to give much context. It's an odd little story about a grieving widow in a fictional city in India. Um, and uh, she meets uh, a woman named Sarah and her husband Rahil. Um, and Sarah is chronically ill, um, and she, you know, starts to get uh, rather entangled in their lives. And that's actually what the book is about. But the excerpt, excerpt I'm reading is about um, her husband and how she lost him, which kind of sets up um, her history as, you, as she enters the book. Kathan and I, a succinct version. Let me confirm one thing now, because it's simply true. Love is only romantic when you've lost it, or if you can't have it. In the end, I lost my love. Eventually, the pain and vulnerability and howling grief were drowned in the bitterness and boredom that only insomnia can birth. But was Kathan a love before he died? Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, said romantic love and marriage could never be experienced in the same lifetime. This is why we humans perpetually suffer from angst, or rather a running between two conflicts, an oxymoron, two things that can never be at once. Heartbreak arises only when you've been stupid enough to expect anything as a given, a happy marriage that lasts 50 years, children who grow up and don't die before you, or a promotion that comes every few years. Heartbreak only comes from expectation. I had a naive, awkward, gentle expectation of Kathan, that he would be with me until I was old, that I would probably be the first to die, that he, if anyone, could bear the brunt of losing me. Mundane office love stories are the most predictable of all. They only exist because people like us forget how to express our desire to live and love beyond the walls of conference rooms and meetings where glances can be exchanged. Kathan and I were the sort of people who thought social bonding was employing a chai break to talk about a coworker with smug judgments, or moments of joy were heaped upon the everyday baseline of la light traffic, three-day weekends, and the candied HR emails that urged us to keep leading and achieving our goals. He was a project manager. I was leading internal communications. I've forgotten the main purpose of the company we used to work for. There were far too many experts, far too many divisions for anyone to form a cohesive image of the entire company and its place in the world. 
I barely had an idea then, much less now. Still, I controlled its internet, sent out firm-wide updates, and helped the interns resize images. Maybe, maybe it's precisely because such a, uh, such a cog in the machine that allows you to fall in love in the first place. If you are trapped in mundanity, it's impossible not to latch your poor soul to something or someone that makes you realize your vulnerable pumping heart will only beat a certain number of times, no matter how clean the air is inside those air-conditioned walls. Kathan carried himself with a gentleness I've seen in no other man. He had a beard five years ahead of the trend and a make-you-believe-in-God smile. Yes, the fucking charming smile cliché. Expectations, after all, are made of clichés. I developed a crush on him the first day in the office, at which time I had already been at the company for a year. I came up to him with an unnecessary and largely irrelevant question. He never called me out on it and was quick to find some kind of legitimate office connection to justify us loitering by each other's cubicle most of the day. We both came from conservative enough families, but, were, but we were no prudes. We took off to Pondicherry the first three-day weekend we got. We went to French cafes, grabbed beers, and ate spicy seafood by the beach. We got right down to sex in the hotel, no qualms, though he was my first. I never asked if I was his. I assumed I was. He made love by searching, searching for something through the act. You could feel his confusion, his need to express something, something locked in by his body. In exchange, I made love by letting him find his own answers. I stroked his hair, whispered into his ears, easing his anxiety. One morning, he lay on the bed after sex. He rubbed his beard and grinned. The grin disappeared and his mouth puckered in thought. It's like I have so much more to do. Then he got up and went to the bathroom, came out and asked me if I wanted to explore Oroville. We married eight months later in a simple ceremony. His parents, my father, our friends, and a majority of our office co-workers were present. We, brought a th we bought a three-bedroom flat 20 minutes from our office. Kathan said that it wouldn't be long until it took 40 minutes to get there. We're crawling all over the city, multiplying like insects, aren't we, he said. So far, all our expectations were alive and well. Our work days, our lunches, and our dinners together, our friends on the weekends, our lovemaking at night, such basic expectations. Seven months later, he died in a really stupidly common accident. At a spot equidistant from the house and our office, it was a two-wheeler accident. A two-wheeler not because we couldn't afford a stupid car, but because it was the faster way to move through the city. And his helmet was shit and it cracked. Still, nothing happened to his head. His middle section was run over, resulting in a massive internal bleeding. What a bunch of shit the body is made of. It's put here on earth to take emotional bullets all day, all night, but one thud, a bit of force, and the body immediately gives up. Bleeding, bursting, rendering itself so fucking useless. When I was brought to the morgue to see him, I had only anger and disgust for the human body. What a horrific joke. What a silly, stretchy, fragile, untrustworthy thing it was. I started screaming. I pounded his chest, his fucking stupid bleeding ass stomach that couldn't seem to have gotten its act together in time. I smacked his face. I screeched, you fucking idiot, get up. Why are you so weak? I never got to see his cremation. My father had me drugged and kept me in a hospital room, lurching in and out of consciousness for a week. Each time I woke up, my father would come up to me and coo soothing words that jumbled together. 
He kept telling me to rest. Friends came in. They talked to me like I was a geriatric patient with, Alzheim with Alzheimer's. Like I had no idea what had happened, when in fact, I could remember every little insult I had screamed, every little word I had said to Kathan's dead body. My anger was only artificially tamed. I could feel my body being med medicated, like a hot water bag on top of a raging, crampy menstrual tummy. I wanted to laugh at the doctors and their medication. What idiots. Like I didn't know what was there, like I couldn't feel what was inside of me. I couldn't act on it. Because my lids fell, they stretched across my face and covered my entire body like cling wrap. I was a butterfly in a cocoon, a cocoon made out of my eyelids, and it felt damn good. Later, I was put in a recovery home for six months where we had collective goals, where we talked to warm, self-aware therapists. Appa called it the farm. I ate upama every morning and drank mosambi juice every evening. It's also where I read Sartre's Nausea and Kafka and about feminism, the Enlightenment, and everything in between. I soaked it up, thriving in privileged absurdity and philosophy. I still have no idea why a humble recovery home offered such a wide array of European Enlightenment and existentialism. Stacked shelf upon shelf, it seemed like an inside joke by the founder of the place, who was dead and whose children had promptly sold it off to a private company. Like most European men, I too found myself in exile. And like them, I would survive. I would obey Albert Camus and honor the freedom I had every day. It worked. One day, about six months after my arrival, I felt so free that I saw the innate absurdity of authority crumbling at my feet. They said I was 110 kilometers from the city. I went to the office and told them that I was free. They said I needed to contact my father. I told them I was 29 years old and I couldn't possibly need my father's permission. They said they could offer no transportation. I had no phone, only theirs. I'll walk home, I told them. They only nodded their heads. They didn't believe me. So I walked righteously toward the gate where a scrawny watchman saw me coming. He very methodically checked the latch on the gate. I told him to let me out. He only said, Madam, no, Madam, no. So I walked up to the gate and unlatched it. I was kind of surprised that the guard made no other attempt to stop me from leaving the farm. He just stood there frozen on the side, looking past me as I walked toward the highway. I guess when someone sees a person who's truly embraced her freedom, one can only be stunned into a fleeting temporary realization of one's own invisible chains. Don't you think? Thank you. That was awesome. Thank you. Rhea and I have been uh, traveling together for like a, a week now, yeah. kind of. We were in Portland and then San Francisco. And Can everyone hear me okay? Yeah, yeah cool. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and now here. And, and so uh, it's been a pleasure to uh, read your book and then hear you read it. Uh, it's been really fun. Thank you. Um, I am going to, so this is my book, We Can Save Us All, um, the, the quick version of it and I th I'm going to read from kind of toward the the end so I'm going to give a little bit of setup I don't think you need a ton for this section um, but uh, it's about a bunch of uh, students who are at Princeton University together in the escalating days of climate change and uh, instead of going to class they decide to move off campus into a geodesic dome and start what becomes an end times cult based on superheroes and fueled by psychedelic drugs um, <laughs> Yeah. Um, when we when we 
when we pick up our intrepid travelers here, uh, the, the, the three main, there's a bunch of characters, I won't get into all of them. The three main ones that you need to know are um, this guy, Matthias Blue, is this sort of charismatic but very unhinged figurehead leader, CEO, founder type guy of this, uh, of this group, and they live in this dome that they call the Egg, that he is kind of the benefactor of, um, and his superhero persona is Ultraviolet. Uh, his kind of counterpart on the operational side is named David Fuffman, and he's kind of the main lens through which we see the, the, the events of the book. Uh, and he's kind of the COO operational, uh, you know, guy behind the scenes. Uh, his his uh, superhero persona is businessman. And, um, and then uh, the third kind of, you know, point in that triangle is Haley Roth. Uh, and she is sort of the, the main kind of marketing, you know, CMO, brand marketing uh, person who's kind of like elevating what they're doing. Uh, she also um, has gone through a very uh, horrifying thing that happens to her in the first semester of, of her freshman year. This all takes place during one, one school year. Um, and uh, it's during a Halloween event. She's wearing a Captain Crunch costume. And because of the... Uh, backlash against her after some stuff happens. The awful uh, college nickname committee decides to call her Captain Cunt. Um, she then takes back that name, and her superhero name is Captain Cunt, uh, and she kind of owns that. So if you hear some of these names that show up, just trust that there's a little bit of context and, uh, <laughs> and, and lead up to that. Um, so they've been planning a bunch of these little spec, not little bigger and bigger spectacles on campus. Um, this movement has spread across the campus and is now spreading to other college campuses. We're picking this up in March, so this is kind of, you know, maybe halfway uh, between when they we've started doing this and the spectacles that they're doing are getting weirder and weirder and kind of crazier and crazier. Um, let me take a drink real quick. Okay, so I'm gonna read for about five minutes. David had, to David had to order the telephone booth special from a rec room supply catalog. Up in the Frist campus center, he stood at a bay window wearing his three-piece suit and wireless headset mic. He stared down at the old-time phone booth on the Princeton campus, his arms crossed like a foreman surveying his factory floor. He was businessman. Their latest spectacle was set, and David searched the courtyard below for his parents. Earlier that morning, after he gave them a tour of the egg, his dad and Haley hit it off, comparing cameras and spouting film theory to each other. Art versus artifice, verite truth, the uncosmeticized human landscape. The camera is the modern means of bearing witness, she'd said glancing sidelong at David. Yep, Haley still had a lot of rage about Halloween. His little sister Beth was mad at David too, or maybe at their parents. Mom and dad had left her with Aunt Abby in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It was for her own good, but she didn't see it that way. This campus was no place for her right now, David told her. But nowhere was any place for anybody anymore. The single best video clip of the day's spectacle was filmed by Channel 12's traffic copter, ultraviolet, on the roof of the Shida Music Building, the campus revolving around him. The still photos, the ones that wound up in Time and Newsweek, those shots belonged to David's dear old dad. 
The local news arrived late to the scene, in time to catch a few final heroes getting shuttled away in a paddy wagon, but most of the video coverage from the day of the hero came courtesy of cell phone cameras and Captain Cunt's DSLR, which she then sold to CNN for a pretty penny. Flipping through the footage, you'd first find Ultraviolet's striptease. On the roof of Shida, he rips off his collared shirt, swings a cape over his head. He lifts a gallon of Benjamin Moore's mystical grape latex paint, displays it like an infant heir to the throne, douses himself in purple. Next, costume heroes do the old Superman quick change, entering and bursting from the phone booth like hornets from a hive. They head straight for the Shida Music Building, where the plan is for these heroes to commandeer as many percussion instruments as possible. All but one of the members of Princeton's African Drumming Ensemble were now part of the USV. The USV is the name of the group, the unnamed Super Squadron of Vigilantes. Unnamed, unnamed press. Here we go. <laughs> uh, all but one of the members of Princeton's African Drumming Ensemble were now part of the USV, and they wanted their djembes, dunun, congas, and talking drums, which would be a useful uniting force for Echo's human DJ experiences. It also served as a decoy, diverting the attention of campus police from the real heists going on all across campus where a bunch of non-costumed USVers were pilfering fabrication materials from the architecture building, film equipment from the arts center, bed frames and mattresses and other furniture from the dorms, clothes and groceries from the U store, and all manner of mechanical and electrical components from the facility's warehouse. Three goofball heroes even scaled Nassau Hall and stole the clapper from the cupola bell that rang the hours. For good measure, Ultraviolet initially shouted insanities from the roof about being able to fly, being ready to jump, an added wrinkle that forced the police into more of a crisis negotiation mode as opposed to offensive crowd control. Between his threats to jump, Ultraviolet orated to the USV below. Back in the 60s, there was a popular nonviolent response to police action they called going limp. It's exactly what it sounds like. Do we want to be like bags of trash hauled to the curb for disposal? When the police try to move you today, tense your muscles. Make your body rigid, rooted to the ground. Be still. When they cart us away, they will loft our taut limbs wide as a soaring superhero. Stay stiff. Put the rigor in rigor mortis. Evolve or perish. <laughs> Businessman watched about 30 costumed USVers get carried away in this fashion before a horde of heroes gathered at the door of Shida, ar linking arms in a movable clump. Cops realized this crowd was primed to riot, so they went after the leader instead, tiptoeing their way across the roof, nervously wielding the kind of pool skimmer implements used to corral suicidal jumpers. How do you feel? Businessman asked into his headset as the cops got their bearings. Like a cold, sassy tree, said his fearless leader. How about you? Like the fucking Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Ultraviolet laughed and said, pay lots of attention to the man behind the curtain. Look alive, Ultraviolet. They're coming up behind you. Stay stiff. And he did look alive. So stately up there, one foot raised on the roof's peak like a big game hunter resting a boot on a prized boar. Most of the USVers down below, with their costumes and tights and gadgets, they looked a bit silly. 
Haley had done yeoman's work on fashion design, but superhero garb never looks as good on real humans as it does on illustrated ones. Real people lack idealized musculature. Costumes lack tightness. You can always find a wrinkle. But Ultraviolet somehow maintained the alien bravado of Superman, the litheness of Spider-Man, the millionaire swagger only Bruce Wayne could pull off. It briefly occurred to businessman, as the cops closed in, that Ultraviolet might fall. But no. Look at him. Balanced on the peak of a roof, and yet this was the most stable he'd ever been. Matthias Blue was beyond clumsy accidents. He was unimpressed with gravity. Thanks. So um, it was funny. Your books are so completely different. It was really fun trying to think of, uh, yeah, these like some things that are crossovers. And one thing that occurred to me was that you both wrote um, stories about kind of how an obsession with one woman can really radically change your life. Um, and I was wondering if you could share a little bit how the the object of the obsession of the novel in um, Rhea's book, her name is Sarah, and in David's book, it's Haley. I mean, in Adam's book, my God, I've projected <laughs> that you're David. <laughs> it's um, not me, yes. <laughs> um, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that, the, the object of the obsession, how the inspiration for those characters came about. Yeah, um... I think, you know, sometimes the people, you know, enter your life at very unexpected times, but they can just completely revolutionize the way you think about everything um, and make sense of your own world. So, um, you know, and it, it, it's happened a lot in my life where someone can completely deconstruct all the notions you have about your life. Uh, and so for me, I think obsession, when, when you think about obsession, and it obviously gets to a point of being very unhealthy also in the book, but um, I think um, it's a great moment of, you know, kind of... Um, letting go of reality and then seeing how how we've come to all uh, collectively as human beings agree on some very random rules. So I think that was something that kind of really inspired me with that. I, I think for me, I think of it like, you know, we're all secretly trying to impress somebody. Maybe it's our parents or, uh, you know, at different times of life, maybe it's, you know, this person or this person or that person or a boss or whoever it is. And I think especially during college or during kind of early college, at least for David, that person is, you know, is this woman who has had something terrible happen to her. And I think he very much wants to prove that he is better than that. He's not like those guys that he's, you know, that he's better than that and that he's better than himself or because they knew each other in high school also. So that he's better than he was in high school. And I think she's kind of this, um, this, this kind of, uh, at first, person that he wants to impress. And then I think, ideally, it becomes much more complicated than that, and um, there's there's something more less superficial than that going on. But I think it starts with that, and he's trying to elevate himself, along with all these people, in terms of being a superhero um, for her. And I thought about, also, there's this really interesting role that, to some degree, spirituality plays in both of your books. Um, 
and you know, in yours is this conversation between Sufism in a way and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then um, in Adam's book, there it's, there's a real, in a way, a religion of of drugs, you know, mm-hmm. and of and also in a way a religion of this cult that gets formed. And I wondered if you could share a little bit about you know how you feel like maybe your own spirituality influences your work or how you thought about spirituality in relationship to your work. Um, so I was a religion major in college and I think that was part of it. Um, I, I was, I'm not a particularly religious person, but I'm fascinated by religions. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons I'm fascinated by it is that there seems to be like a few that were created a a few thousand years Mm -hmm. ago and everyone has somehow in terms of these rules, right? Everyone's agreed that those are the only religions and anything else is a cult. And I think uh, I, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what is a cult and what's not mm-hmm. a cult, because um, mm-hmm. you know yeah. it, I think at best some of these groups can just be really uh, positive, progressive, um, spiritual, you know, traditions that are being formed now or 50 years ago instead Mm of a few thousand years ago and then someone gets scared Mm -hmm. and then the police get involved or whoever gets involved or it's a legitimately fucked up situation where like they won't let you leave and you know um, and they're and they're preying on people Mm -hmm. but there's major religions that are preying on 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 you know vulnerable people so mm. um (laughs) uh, so i think that's sort of where you know their their efforts at least at a good portion of the book, I think are like are positive or noble or honorable that they're trying to develop something that makes sense for their life mm-hmm. right now with climate change, with all of these kind of things mm-hmm. that they're dealing with. Um, what does spirituality look like in the, its best possible form? And then what happens when that gets corrupted? Yeah, I, I completely second your... Uh, your fascination with religion because I think religion plays such a huge role in how we are grounded as uh, communities like their rule we love rules we need to have some kind of hope and some kind of um, idea of how to conduct ourselves in in certain ways Um, but for me this was a lot about answering some of my own spiritual questions um and I happen to believe that, you know, I think the, the, you know, the power of the mind is something that we haven't really, we, we are very dismissive of in scientific communities. We say things like, you know, the placebo effect and when it comes to mental illness. But these are real things that are, um, uh, you know, how people react and respond to their environment in, in events, during events of trauma or events of, you know, just you know, fitting in and how you kind of like want to find your place in the world. And I think it comes down to when you think about a cult or a religion, it comes down to trying to find your place in this world. Um, And that's why, you know, you can, you know, some people can be so consumed by it. Um, So, uh, yeah, so for me, it was, uh, I mean, I was, I guess I was going through my own questions that I had when I was writing. There's a great passage in your book where you, you talk about like Munchausen syndrome right. and you know how the brain basically like is like, well, you, you could probably do it better justice <laughs> than I, I can, but the fight kind of between the brain and the body, the and brain and the body. And I think it's just, you know, there's so much more, uh, merging. Like when you, we say that there's a physical outcome of something, but physically, uh, you know, can be a response of how we're mentally kind of just dealing with the world. Yeah, that's interesting too because there is some there's like a real role that secrets play in both of your uh-huh. books and that like that kind of the things that you're hiding even from yourself, you know, um right. but definitely secrets. the ones that you're 
that are being hidden from so you. Or I just wanted to do that because I have a microphone. <laughs> Should we do it together? Yeah. I'll, Secrets. Secrets. <laughs> Okay, cool, sorry. Um, great. Um, I actually, you know, it's funny because I kept thinking, like, how do I ask a question about secrets? Yeah. And I never quite uh, figured out how to uh, <laughs> phrase it. But so if, if you guys want to answer the non-question about just secrets. secrets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Topic of secrets. secrets. What do you, what do you think? <laughs> I don't know, how do, so how do, how do secrets feature in your book? I, you know, I think in a lot of books, uh, you know, the authors are uh, authors are often playing with what is the what does the reader know right, at a exactly. given point in time yeah, yeah. and what is that character keeping from someone yeah. who needs to know that and you're like just tell them or don't tell them or whatever it is but like there's this thing that's kind of like that you're in on as the reader that the other characters aren't in on so we're kind of tricking you all the time or, or yeah. trying to um, and then it's sort of when to because at some point that comes out or else mm -hmm. why why do you have that in there it's just a exactly. you know. It's, uh, it's like a, the gun on the wall that yeah. never gets used. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's maybe what I would say about secrets. That is when to when I'll to do, let yeah. certain things out to the characters that the reader already knows. Yeah, like chron I think I was trying to play with the chron uh, you know chronology of secrets because Mira keeps just telling the reader a bunch of things actually throughout the book, but then she what I was trying to do was trying to play with the reader and say that oh wait that happened then. That doesn't make sense, and like so, the reveal is because of when it happened or how it happened, rather than what it is exactly. Because Mira is seriously does keep telling you very important secrets throughout the book. And I'm curious. So Adam, obviously, I I know you, um, and uh, I and we went to college together. This is set at the site of our college, and so I obviously kept projecting that David is you and even, you know, and so obviously, um, and I, and I was like, oh, is this how Adam wishes college went, you know, like <laughs> that he'd like started a cult, you know, like, or found a cult, you know, and then we'd all like, and then the end of days came and so, um, could you maybe share like how much of your own self do you feel like you ended up putting into that character or that part or how much did you not put in? Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't want my, I liked how our college went. It was pretty fun. I, I didn't want, uh, I didn't want the, the cult. Um, the, I, so I think the one area where there's, I think there's plenty of overlap, I'm sure, but I, he is not me. And I remember being in like, you know, workshops and stuff like that where people would be like, I don't really like when you did this. And I would have to remind them like, I, this is a fictional character. I'm, I'm having this character make very poor decisions sometimes. <laughs> knowing that they're poor decisions to create drama. Um, so, you know, I, I, yeah. I, there, there's, plenty of, there's plenty of distance there, hopefully. You see, there, you, you think there's a link between poor decisions and drama? <laughs> uh, I do, I really do. Um, and, because, you know, it's always like, well, don't do that. Oh, he just did that. And hopefully it's, you know, there's, it's like, uh, there's context for it and it feels earned and all of that. Um, but, you know, I, I wanted to, at first it was in first person and I made it into third person on some advice from some from smart people, um, mainly so that I could have some distance and allow that character to make worse and worse decisions. Um, but I think the one area of maybe like clear inspiration, uh, well, maybe two. Uh, in college, I started... Uh, co-founded this thing called Mima Music. It was this um, 
uh, at first an organization on, on campus that we just threw parties. Uh, we got some money from the school and would throw parties. It was really fun, but they were with different kinds of music that the campus wasn't usually exposed to. And so we threw bigger and bigger parties. Um, and I think that was, it was interesting to watch this thing start from nothing. And now it's in, you know, it's a very noble 501c3 music education nonprofit that's worked in 40 uh, countries, which I don't, I don't, I can't take credit for that. Um, other people, you know, took it to a different place. But it was interesting to watch something go from nothing and then build into something. Um, and so then I, I thought, what would that be like if it was, you know, if there was climate change going on, if there was this sort of pre-apocalyptic phenomena happening and it wasn't just to throw parties, it was, you know, uh, this group that was trying to really elevate what they're doing and everyone has a thesis project where it's something that they can use practically to save the world or make the world a better place, not in a magic mutant kind of powers way, but in like a small, you know, I'm going to learn how to grow food with, you know, aquaponics or whatever it is, just these little things. I'm going to become the expert in this so that when the power goes out for three weeks, I know how to do that and I can teach other people. Um, so I think that, and then the big bang, we can talk about the big bang if you want to talk about that. Oh, you separately? You separate, yeah. maybe, yeah. <laughs> Later. Okay, great. I feel, like that's, I feel like that's another conversation. Yeah. And then, Ria, your book is so, it feels so deeply personal, and there's so many moments in it that feel so um, almost impossible to, to have concocted. Like, I, there's this moment that really stung me in a way. Like, it stayed with me that where um, Mira learns, our main character learns about something, a really, really big thing about her mother's mm -hmm. death from her father. Mm -hmm. And the, the chapter ends with the father, um, like, kind of tapping his foot to mm -hmm. its own rhythm. Mm -hmm. And that detail, I just was like, wow, that just, it was just, you know, for a huge moment and this huge thing to have landed <laughs> and then just to be that mm -hmm. tapping. And I, I really was like, I did also wonder, you know, how much did you feel that you drew from your own real experiences? And, and then how much did you kind of, um, were you just going in yeah. an invention? Um, I mean, I'll, everything in the book is completely fictional, but there is a lot of emotion that I've worked with in different ways, not because of a lot of the trauma that um, the main character in this book are things I have never experienced, but there are, there are um, losses that I have experienced and, um, you know, identity struggles that you, you know, that Mira is also trying, you know, Mira is trying to validate herself a lot through intellectualism. She reads a lot during her time of grief and you know how Adam was talking about impressing another person um, and how important that becomes. So for her, when she meets Sarah, she is trying to validate herself to Sarah because Sarah is somehow a little woo-woo and mystic and mysterious. Um, and I think she tries to, sh you know, uh, channel a lot of her, uh, you know, Mira needs va self-validation and she's trying to do that by showing off how much she's read and how she shows, you know, how she sees the world through what she's read. And I think I went through, a, you know, a period in my life where I thought that, you know, that's the only way to look at the world. And I think that is the two, you know, the two parts. One is the, the, you know, the bookish knowledge of the world and then the spiritual knowledge of the world and, you know, how actually both are really needed for our human experience to coexist. Um, I'd love to open it up to you guys. Uh, does anyone in the audience have a question? Yeah, go for it.
that's off the table for us because they're not offering for, you know, no embargoes on skirts. They're just saying, well, let's do the things. You wouldn't be carrying your ribbons like thousands of years ago. Um, so I'm just wondering if you could suss that out a little bit more. And um, I forgot what I was going to say. It was something about what you call Well, real, real quick, just for everyone, uh, just to try and um, capture the question. Uh, the, your question is that, tell me if I'm wrong here, that uh, there are a lot of religions that have been around for thousands of years and some of the new age thinking is not as rigorous in terms of the philosophical mm -hmm. thought and mm -hmm. the you know rhetoric behind it uh, mm -hmm. than some of these new newfangled religions or new age spirituality. That the well, ancient thought yeah. had a lot of wisdom in it. I, I feel, well, actually, I feel, see, what's happening if you look at me as a, from my experience, what I've seen of the world right now is that we, you know, you look at ancient traditions and rituals, there was a lot more uh, rituals and traditions that people practiced. And in our, the last couple of generations, we've kind of lost out on that. We are more individualistic. We are just going. So there is a gap to be filled. And I think what you're, perhaps you're referring to is like a lot of this, you know, the woo-woo new age stuff is actually, if you ask me, an attempt to find a rhythm or something that is sacred again, and I think that you know it, it kind of presents itself in cults and you know new age groups and you know I don't know. There's so many words for it today, but I really think it just goes back to the truth that hu humans like to bond over a certain you know sense of hope and a sense of well-being in some kind of way. And you know, of, of course, there's so many ways for it to go wrong because you know once we start abusing power then you can take any kind of template and make it a terrible thing but i actually think that it's it's a path to us trying to fill in a gap we've lost in 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 a few in these you know few generations and just to play devil's advocate yeah. um, i think you know you're absolutely right that there's such wisdom in all of the mm -hmm. traditions i think you know, there's a way of looking at any religious tradition, any spiritual tradition in a very kind of traditionalist, orthodoxy, scripture, you know, type of way. And then there's the ritual and the direct experience and the mysticism that almost every tradition has right. that that level of it. Um, and usually in order to, to be thought of someone who could experience the mystical side of it, you already have to have gone through X number of years of the traditional side and you have to have read the, you know, these hundred texts and, and done all of these things. But I think, you know, that, that can, at worst, that can be so closing to, or, or, or so restrictive to, especially young people, um, you know, hmm. to say you have to do X, Y, and Z for 40 years before you're allowed into this club. Right. Maybe I don't want to do that. You know, maybe I just want to have a direct experience. And that's why I think when people turn to things like psychedelic drugs mm -hmm. or, uh, rich, you know, kind of group, mm -hmm. d whatever, dance, music, you know, anything, anytime when people are getting together and having a slightly otherworldly experience, they're like, well, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. I want to, what's that all about? I want to follow that because that was not just a great superficial feeling, but there was a connection to some sort of higher power. I want to pursue that. Um, and so I think religion can be really great, but it can be really restrictive. I think the old religions can have a lot of wisdom, but I think it can have a lot of danger too. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe the woo-woo thing gets a, a, you know, the sort of new age, you hear that and you think crystals and this and that, but maybe crystals are great for someone. Maybe they're like totally creating that, that connection and like, I don't get it, but it's amazing for them. And so who am I to say? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so my question for you both is more about your writing process than about the 
A, st a statement to the world? Yes. Mm -hmm. You guys have your voices, obviously, uh -huh. not this, and I'm just kidding. Um, and then just this one. So my question okay. to you both is, was there ever a point trying to find story that says how it was all just kind of stuck together? One, you have a breaking point. Do you ever want to quit? And then what helped you get through that? Okay, so <laughs> the question was for anyone who didn't hear. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great question. <laughs> Uh, the question is, you know, uh, did we ever, as in our writing process, feel like we had a breaking point or feel like we wanted to quit or um, just throw in the towel? Yeah. I think multiple times. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go hundreds of times. Yeah. Um, so th my book took 12 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I started writing it in December of 2005, and it was published in November of 2018. So you can do the math if you want there. Um but uh, and I would like to pretend that like I put it aside for you know eight years and then came back to it. But I was working on it pretty consistently during that whole time. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of times where I wanted to quit. Um, I felt like I was ke I kept getting closer. I kept getting better responses or more responses from agents or from the different gatekeepers. Um, it didn't feel like it was just I'm I'm getting crickets for ten years. It felt like I was getting I was putting one foot in front of the other every time and I was chipping away at something. I think if it hadn't felt like that it would have been harder, but like just those little crumbs of positive feedback or um, you know try changing this and see how it works. The, those were really helpful and kind of kept me going. And then support from friends and, and people to just be like, hey, I know you're bummed right now that you've been working on this, you know, with this one agent for a year or whatever and they, you know, they, it's not going to work out. Like, uh, you know, shut up and get up and Go just on, keep, yeah. keep grinding, you know. What was your experience? Yeah, I mean, I was, uh, we were talking about th this earlier that if you're going to be, well, we're fragile souls, but if you're going to be a writer, you have to, you have to be okay with rejection or at least, you know, it, it being 90% of your existence. Um, I was, I wrote two, I wrote two novels that I had to trash before this. So that was part of the process to get here. This, my book, uh, this one that is finally published got, um, was written fairly like faster than, uh, you know, yours, but um, and it took me two years to get this out here, but I had two novels before that. There was part of this entire process trying to find my voice, trying to figure out what story I wanted to say, and I think those were the times that were the hardest, because I was like, this is not going anywhere, and you know, you're not getting, you're trying to query it, you're trying to get interest, and it's just, it's not there, and you're, you're collecting form rejections, so I don't know if, you know, if you're a writer, you might know this. There's like the form rejection, which is just the blatant, like, it's an automated response. It's just like, you know, we do not talk to us. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then there's like the, you know, like the semi, like, oh, this was kind of interesting. Send us something next time, but this is not going to do it. And then you have like a really amazing response, which is still a rejection, but it's like they'll actually write notes and say, well, I like this and I like this and I like this. And, you know, maybe you should talk to us later when you've gotten it to a better point or something like that. <laughs> Still rejection, guys. But there's, so there's like, so there was a point where I was just getting the form rejections. Um, and I think, you know, at that point, it was just, it was probably the hardest time. Um, but I think uh, if you're a writer, you still, you, you just have to do it. Like you keep writing and you keep pushing and you keep, you use the rejections as a badge of honor, or not even as a badge of honor. It's just basically like, well, if I'm getting rejections, that means I'm still working. I'm still working towards what I want to do. And I don't know if it's, I mean, it's certainly not just writing. It, you know, I, before 
working on this book, I worked on a feature-length film in college that was rejected by 76 film festivals. That's the exact number. <laughs> I will never forget that mm -hmm. number because that's how many it was. And it was all, all form rejections. And it was just, that was also like in like 2004 when like you, you couldn't send it digitally. I was like making wow. VHS dupes and sending oh them like by FedEx and Jeez. printing everything out. And it fucking sucked. Um, yeah. But like, yeah. You know, but 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 it was great because after you get those thirty, the first thirty rejections suck. But then after like you get to like fifty, it was like yeah, whatever. And that was really it, it thickened my skin so that when I got to this next project, I it, you know they didn't hurt quite as much and just felt like well this is it. And there's a great I'm sure there's like a cat poster that says this somewhere. But you know I saw some something that said like you know wanting to be a writer and not wanting rejection is like wanting to be a boxer and not wanting to be hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know. Yeah. Are there qu other questions around here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a uh, question for the both of you as well. So, you know, is, is there a character particularly in each of your books that you identify with the most and tell me why? Um, the, qu the question was, is there a character that yeah. you identify with most and why? I love Adam's summary of things. Well, it just, just makes it more, all so much. It's no, more it's really for, good. for yeah. volume, yeah, and podcast. No, no, it makes it easier because I <laughs> space out a lot. So that's <laughs> um, Yeah, I think bo th uh, there were flip sides for me. Uh, for I mean, there were uh, things that I definitely did not r um, relate to with my main character, but there was a very strong part of her worldview that resonated. And... Um, I took from both these characters. They could be like split parts of my mind. Sarah, there's a part of her open spirituality that I'm very compelled by and very like open to the mysteries of the world. Um, and then there's the rigor of Mira, which is like no nonsense, a little bit cynical, um, which I also use to see the world. And and I'm tr you know the process in my own personal experience is finding the balance between those two. Um, and uh, so I think that's you know that's how I relate to my characters because they they represent sides of me. Um, I you know we talked about David already. I I think you know, uh, <laughs> but I I, I think you? Uh, no you know I <laughs> I think he's me at my sort of like most like lame <laughs> on some level. Like I'm aware of that. I'm self aware enough to be like that's that's what I would be if I if I just like like really you know really leaned into the lameness sometimes. Um, but but like uh, but then there's uh, Matthias who I would think to myself, well, this is kind of like yeah, he's crazy, but like uh, you know, if I had the the guts to sort of like just like be the rock star person and like go for it like i i kind of you know could see that or i think i like especially my my editor El olivia who's here uh toward the end of the you know editing process she pushed me to write about 80 or 100 more pages from from haley's point of view um it was late in the game and um i was kind of nervous for that because uh, it was also right kind of in the upswing of the me too movement um and through that process, I, I got really close to her, and I think I understood um, uh, uh, more about myself, more about her through that process. So I think all three of them, uh, there's a there's a piece of, piece of me in there.
When did the story first hit you? I'm going to write about this. I'm just picking up the Good cues job. here. Yeah. <laughs> you want me to go? No. Uh, it started as a, a like a th three-page piece of flash fiction, which is still kind of the first you know three pages of the book. Um, I had seen a uh, documentary about um, Hitler called High Hitler, H-I-G-H, -H, and it's about the amount of, of drugs that Hitler was on in, re yeah, in, in real life uh, during the 30s and 40s, um, just a huge amount of methamphetamines and cocaine eye drops and all of these things, which you know makes some of those crazy speeches make a little bit more sense when you just see him going nuts. Um, he was on a lot of meth. Uh, so the first... The first line of the book is, even Hitler was on meth. Um, that's been the first line of the book for 12 years. So I, I saw that, that documentary and, was, and kind of uh, wrote this three-page piece of flash fiction, kind of extrapolating the idea of what would it look like today uh, you know, if a very charismatic, very unhinged leader figure, unfortunately we're kind of dealing with that anyway, uh, you know, came to power during all of this you know, uh, climate change and other sort of pre-apocalyptic uh, phenomenon and was just very, you know, very drug-addled but also in control of a lot of people and, and, and energy. My, uh, the, the first thing I was, um, you know, I had this image of the, the first scene of the book, which is, uh, you know, if, if you saw someone at a park um, and you thought that they were faking an illness to get some attention and you were not sure, um, you know, how would that how would that kind of play out? Because your first instinct is to go and help somebody and then you're also confused by it. Um, and I had this and that was the start of my story. And I said, I have to see this through. Um, it wasn't really, I mean, granted, it's a really bizarre thing to think about, but um, that's how my book started. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, I just wanted to ask you, when in the creative process, when you were writing a book, and there were even more than a little bit, um, what, do you, what is the feeling that you actually wanted to portray? What is the key takeaway from what you wrote yeah. that you wanted to portray? Mm -hmm. I don't know who your audience is. Maybe it's everybody and it's about everybody who's standing and picks it up and ends up taking it home. I'm not sure. Uh, as a creative piece that you put out there, Yeah, that's that's a good que that's a good question. It's a big question. I um, because you know the thing is what 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 you realize, and this is very recent. Once this book because this book has been out just a, a like a month right now, a little bit over a month, and you realize that it's not your story anymore because people have all these different interpretations of it, and it's not like I had you know, 100 reviews yet, but whatever reviews I have already seen of the book, you see like, wow, this person read it this way. And sometimes I, I see it in really great ways, in ways that I expected or wanted. Um, you know, I want people to see the themes of, you know, mental illness and um, opening up the mind and history and, and our political realities, which are all things that Mira kind of, you know, comments on throughout the book. Um, so it is everybody, it is, so I have to be really open to this idea that it is what people take out of it and how they see the world. But my only hope is that it can allow people to open their mind in a new way. And honestly, that's as honest I can as I can be about it. Yeah. I think my my answer, um, that's a great answer, by the Thank way. Thank you. Um, I think m <laughs> my answer is, because uh, that's sort of what I got from your book and yeah. the openness, yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, 
I think uh, my book's a lot about authoritarianism in a way. Um, it's kind of a, a small campus version of that maybe with more costumes and more drugs, but um, it's still kind of about that. And I think a, a lot of it, a lot of where this group starts, it's called We Can Save Us All because it's very much about each individual kind of coming into their own power and, and being honest about that in the same way that you just said, uh, you know, you're writing maybe because you have something you want to say. I think everyone has something they want to say, whether it's through a book or through construction or through music or whatever. Um, there's something that you're really good at, and you can, you know, hem and haw about that or, or make yourself small uh, because you're scared, or you can, you know, step up and, and just be as, as big as you can be with that and not wait for someone. So much of our superhero stuff is waiting for the Messiah to come, waiting for some Superman to come, swoop in and save the day. And that's just not going to happen. Um, or at least it hasn't really happened so far historically. <laughs> uh, and when a lot of people, when everyone kind of steps up at the same time, it's unbelievably powerful. Um, and I think when these movements fall apart is when everyone then attaches that power to one person. Um, but if we were able to sort of hold that space and, and, and think of that as sort of a, you know, not, not the starting point to leading up to giving all of our power to this one person, but all of us just holding that power and supporting each other and kind of doing our, our thing as well as we can do it, uh, I think we'd be in really good shape no matter what happens to the world. Um, and so I think it's hopefully a, a sort of roadmap in that way or could be, but then also a cautionary tale of what happens when you give over your power. On that note, I had an idea of how to kind of close this, which is, so Adam and I have a history of leading unusual rituals. <laughs> um, and, I w and I spent this weekend reading all of their, these two books in this ri by this river. So I thought maybe we, in the spirit of new age meets old age, yeah. could close with some kind of uh, thing. So, um, <laughs> so I was going to see if... Um, if everyone wants to, I, nothing weird is, I mean, nothing weird, too weird is going to happen. Um, I was going to say, maybe if everyone close their eyes and makes a sound like you're the river, you're the net, you're the river, you know, you, whatever that's like, whoosh, like, you know, I'll help too. Um, and then maybe you guys, I thought maybe you could swap books and then just wow, kind of read at random like some lines that you know feel like they're speaking to you so it's almost like you're reading both books simultaneously by a river um and uh this could be more bizarre than my book yeah i think it might be <laughs> And um, and then we'll just see you know we'll just see how that goes. Well, uh, you know, don't worry, it won't go on for. It's definitely. I mean, it'll be done within thirty minutes. You know. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Um, so uh, okay, so audience, we have to do our part. We have to be the river. You can close your eyes, take those breaths, like and now we're. Ready? They made love for the first time in the room where his mother and father were out for a Diwali dinner. Rahil was nervous, kept looking at the door and asking what he should say when his parents were to suddenly come home and ask why the door was locked. But Sarah calmed him down, convincing him that her parents were more Western that way. Too many people in the family lived away from India. She even had a lesbian cousin who had married a French girl in Toronto. Nothing could shock them. If anything, it would be awkward. David knew about Thank you, Josephine, so much.
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.